Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 57 called The Battle of the Catalonian Plains. In the last episode we heard about Attila's invasion of Gaul in 451. Known as the Scourge of God, he sacked Metz and Reims but several Gallic towns held out against him, giving rise to various dramatic miracle stories, from that of the pious virgin Genevieve, who saved Paris with a sort of prayer marathon, to the Bishop of Orléans, who prayed for Aetius to come to the rescue of the town, which he did. While these stories are largely the invention of the early Christian church, our trusty Gothic chronicler Jordanes has left us with a more plausible and convincing record of events. And one thing stands out. By far the most important strategic issue was the alliance between the Romans and Visigoths. They were, of course, normally enemies, as the Visigoths wanted to oust the Romans from southern Gaul. And it was only with some reluctance that the Visigothic king Theodoric joined Aetius. But join he did, and in June 451, the Romans and Visigoths arrived at Orléans, and Attila decided to retreat. Attila retreating? Did I hear you say in amazement? Yes, even the legendary conqueror of the world, Attila, abandoned the siege of Orléans and retreated 90 miles east. Why? Well, I think he knew that the Visigoths were no pushover. He hadn't expected them to ally with Aetius, and this seems to have caused him to reconsider his campaign. Jordanes says that he resorted to the well-practiced recourse of taking omens. They, the Huns, examined the entrails of cattle and certain streaks in bones that had been scraped, and these foretold disaster to the Huns. Yet, as a slight consolation, they prophesied that the chief commander of the foe they were to meet should fall and mar by his death the rest of the victory and the triumph. Now Attila deemed the death of Aetius a thing to be desired, even at the cost of his own life, for Aetius stood in the way of his plans. So although he was disturbed by this prophecy, he began the battle. Jordanes was writing nearly a century later, and his account is full of poetic license. I doubt Attila joined battle just because he thought Aetius would be killed. But it makes a good story. More likely is that he had little choice but to fight the Roman Visigothic alliance. Retreat would have been out of the question if he was to keep his authority over his many Germanic subjects. His real priority was to find a location that had the wide open spaces in which he could use his Hunnic cavalry to maximum effect. So he retreated through the forest of Orléans to the Catalonian plains. There was a skirmish between the Franks in the vanguard of Aetius's army and the Gepids in the rearguard of Attila's. This bought time for Attila to reach his destination. Once in the open of the Catalonian plains, the Huns regrouped and prepared for battle. Aetius's allied army caught up with him, and on the 20th of June, 451, the two armies faced each other across the flat plain. Jordanes has left us with by far the best description of the battle. He begins by saying, quote, The battlefield was a plain rising by a sharp slope to a ridge, which both armies sought to gain, for advantage of position is a great help. 
The location was identified in 1885 by a local historian as being the area around modern Montreuil, close to the ancient town of Troy, whose bishop, as recounted in the last episode, was the one who'd asked Attila his name, only to be told he was the scourge of God. Today, the ridge is clearly identifiable, and the names of some areas suggest references to the ancient battle with one called L'Enfer, or Hell, and another called La Riviere de Corps, the River of Bodies. The two armies drew up opposite each other. Jordanes is very clear about the order of battle. On the Allied side, the Visigoths were on the right wing, with Aetius and his Roman and barbarian forces on the left. Rather unusually, the centre was given to the Alans, led by Sangibanus, since they were the least trustworthy, according to Giordanes, and by surrounding them with Visigoths and Romans, Aetius hoped to make it difficult for them to defect to the Huns. This proved a clever move. On Attila's side, the lineup was more conventional, with the Hun leader and the primary group of Huns in the centre. The Germans were on both wings. The two main German contingents were the Ostrogoths, led by Valamir, and the Gepids, led by Arderic. Jordanes has left us with a captivating description of the two German kings, emphasising that Attila regarded them highly. Quote, For Attila prized Arderic and Valamir, king of the Ostrogoths, above all the other chieftains. Valamir was a good keeper of secrets, bland of speech and skilled in wiles, and Arderic was famed for his loyalty and wisdom. The size of the Hunnic host is emphasised by Jordanes' description of the rest of the German tribes in his army and the lowly positions they occupied in the Hun hierarchy. Quote, now the rest of the crowd of kings, of the leaders of various nations, hung upon Attila's nod like slaves, and when he gave a sign, even by a glance, without a murmur, each stood forth in fear and trembling. Attila alone was king of all kings. The scene was set for a battle royal. The future of Gaul and perhaps that of Western Europe would be decided by the outcome. But things began badly for the Huns. Attila made an uncharacteristic tactical mistake. In the early morning of the 20th of June, he ignored the strategic significance of the ridge until it was too late. Both sides made a rush to take the highest part of the ridge, but the Visigoths and Romans got there first. Attila sent his men to take the hill, but a substantial Visigothic force led by Torismund, Theodoric's son, routed them and established command of this high ground. The effect of losing this first skirmish seems to have demoralised the Hunnic army. In Shakespearean fashion, Jordanes has left us with a long speech attributed to Attila, which is almost certainly fiction, and from which I'll only quote a short extract. Here you stand, after conquering mighty nations and subduing the world, let us then attack the foe eagerly, despise this union of discordant races. You know how slight a matter the Roman attack is. Attack the Alans, smite the Visigoths, I shall hurl the first spear at the foe. The Hunnic army surged forward and smashed into the Alans in the centre, who seem to have retreated since Jordanes says that the Visigoths lost contact with them. 
The Alans were horsemen and, unlike the Romans on the left wing, would not have been able to form an infantry shield wall to resist the Huns. Giordanes says the fighting was exceptionally fierce. Hand to hand they clashed in battle and the fight grew fierce, confused, monstrous, unrelenting, a fight whose like no ancient time had ever recorded. There such deeds were done that a brave man who missed this marvellous spectacle could not hope to see anything so wonderful all his life long. In true Homeric fashion, Jordanes describes a stream that became gorged with blood. A brook flowing between low banks through the plain was greatly increased by blood from the wounds of the slain. Thirsty warriors found they were drinking blood from it, not water. In modern France, the stream is still called La Riviere de Cour, the River of Bodies, as I mentioned earlier, in an extraordinary recollection of this battle so long ago. Attila may have thought that victory was his when the Alans in the centre retreated, but he was mistaken. The Romans were holding their own, presumably using testudo formations to hide from the rain of Hun arrows. Their German allies, the Franks and Burgundians, probably mainly on foot, were in their shield walls. The Hunnic cavalry would have unleashed their barrage of arrows, but the Romans and Germans would have replied with a storm of javelins, arrows, and the Frankish throwing axes for which they were famous. The result was a standoff. Meanwhile, on the Allied right wing, the Visigoths were fighting fiercely against their Gothic cousins, the Ostrogoths. Both sides would have comprised a mix of cavalry and infantry, which would have been hacking each other with swords, spears and axes in what must have been a horrific contest. Then disaster struck the Visigoths, according to Giordanes, quote, King Theodoric, while riding by to encourage his army, was thrown from his horse and trampled underfoot by his own men, thus ending his days at a ripe old age. But others say he was slain by the spear of Andag of the host of Ostrogoths, end quote. Theodoric's death could have broken Visigothic morale, but the opposite happened. They were whipped up into a frenzy against the Huns and defeated them, the first time this had ever happened in Hunnic history. Unfortunately, Jordanes is disappointingly brief about this vital part of the battle, having spent two pages of his account describing Attila's speech before the battle, he gives us only one sentence on the most important part of it. Quote, then the Visigoths, separating from the Alani, fell upon the horde of Huns and nearly slew Attila. Hang on, Jordanes, could you repeat that, please? Maybe with a little bit more detail? So, what really happened? Most historians think Theodoric's son, Torismund, charged down from the ridge where he'd repulsed the Huns earlier that day and drove into the flank of the Ostrogoths. But at what point in the battle did that occur? Was it before or after Theodoric's death? Some popular accounts of the battle describe Torismund seeing his father fall and then launching his attack and in revenge breaking through the Ostrogothic lines to nearly slay Attila. But this is pure fiction. Would Torismund have actually seen his father fall? Almost certainly not. Theodoric would have been too far away for his son to spot him among thousands of warriors. 
So what really happened? I think the most plausible explanation is that Torresmond was waiting on the hill for the right opportunity to attack the oncoming Ostrogoths. At some point, he led a charge down the hill and into the Ostrogothic flank. Since Jordanes says the Visigoths fell upon the Huns and nearly slew Attila, the ferocity of this charge must have taken him through the Ostrogoths and into the Hun centre, where Attila himself was leading the assault, pushing the Alans back. This was when the battle was won. Somehow the Visigothic cavalry broke the Huns, the most dangerous military force in the Western world. Jordanes says, but he, Attila prudently took flight and straight away shut himself and his companions within the barriers of the camp, which he had fortified with wagons. A frail defence indeed, yet there they sought refuge for their lives, whom but a little while before no walls on earth could withstand. So how did the Visigoths defeat the Huns? This has to be the single most important question in the entire battle. And I think the reason is that Attila lost his competitive advantage. This was his Huns. It wasn't that the Huns weren't present at the battle, of course they were, but I suspect his army had a lot more Germans than Huns. This meant that the Hun tactics were diluted. The Huns were skilled horse archers. They could taunt their enemies into charging by showering them with arrows and then turning while still shooting arrows. They were good at feigned retreats and ambushes. In contrast, the Germans fought in a fairly conventional way, with infantry lined up in shield walls and cavalry used to make high-impact charges. The evidence we have is that German tactics predominated in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Attila led a straight frontal assault on the Alans, Visigoths and Romans. There was nothing clever in his tactics. Indeed, the opposite, he allowed the Visigoths to take the high ground and then charge down on the Ostrogoths. So, for once, Attila failed to use the magic that had brought the Huns so many victories in the past. With Attila now lodged behind his fortified camp of wagons, the battle carried on into the evening, according to Jordanes, in a fairly chaotic way. Indeed, he says... It was so confused that both Torismund and Aetius lost their way and ended up unsure exactly where they were. It's worth quoting in full Jordanus's passage describing this since it's so unusual that it rings true. Quote, but Torismond, the son of King Theodoric, who with Aetius had seized the hill and repulsed the enemy from the higher ground, came unwittingly to the wagons of the enemy in the darkness of the night, thinking he'd reached his own lines. As he was fighting bravely, someone wounded him in the head and dragged him from his horse. Then he was rescued by the watchful care of his followers and withdrew from the fierce conflict. Aetius also became separated from his men in the confusion of the night and wandered about in the midst of the enemy. Fearing disaster had happened, he went about in search of the Goths. At last he reached the camp of his allies and passed the remainder of the night in the protection of their shields. End quote. This passage is one of the most convincing descriptions of the battle. 
I can just imagine how it degenerated into a chaotic muddle after Attila withdrew to his wagon citadel. The battle took place on nearly the longest day of the year, and in the late evening light there must have been lots of groups of Germans wandering about and colliding with each other, some allied to the Huns and some to the Romans. Tolstoy famously said that in a battle most people don't have a clue what's going on, particularly the generals. I think it was the same here. Torresmond was wounded in the head, perhaps rather randomly meeting a group of Ostrogoths or Gepids. Jordanes says Aetius wasn't sure what had happened and went looking for the Visigoths to find out. All of this has a ring of truth to it. But despite all the confusion, one thing was clear. Attila had been defeated. The next day, both sides looked warily at each other. As Jordanes says... The Romans saw the fields were piled high with bodies and that the Huns didn't venture forth, so they thought the victory was theirs. Meanwhile, Attila, quote, did nothing cowardly like one that is overcome, but with clash of arms sounded the trumpets and threatened an attack, end quote. But Attila didn't attack. He was, according to Giordanis, like a wounded lion, pierced by hunting spears, who paces to and fro before the mouth of his den, and dares not spring, but ceases not to terrify by his roaring. But his defiance couldn't disguise his despair. He told his men to heap up a great funeral pyre of horse saddles, so that if the Romans and Visigoths attacked and broke into the wagon circle, he would die in the flames rather than be captured alive. Interestingly, this suggests the Huns had wooden saddles suitable for burning, not like the leather ones used by the Romans and still used today, which seem to have been typical of the steppe nomads at this time, who used quite hefty wooden saddles to give them stability on horseback before stirrups came into widespread use. The availability of saddles for burning also suggests heavy Hun casualties. But nothing happened. We can picture the scene. Silence after the ferocious din of battle the previous day, corpses everywhere, riderless horses grazing, smoke from campfires on both sides as the hungry warriors tried to eat something. Both sides must have been exhausted. On the Roman side, Aetius met Torismund. They decided not to attack the Hun wagon circle. Instead, they chose to starve the Huns out. Placing their bowmen in front of the Hunnic camp, they tried to hinder movement. Attila's army was dependent on foraging, and there must have been skirmishes as groups of Huns and their German allies left to find provisions. Meanwhile, the Visigoths sent out search parties to scour the battlefield for Theodoric's body, which had not been recovered. Jordanes says, quote, They found him where the dead lay thickest, as happens with brave men, and they honoured him with songs and bore him away in the sight of the enemy. What happened next was one of the most intriguing aspects of the entire conflict. Jordanes says that Torismund was keen to attack the Huns and finish them off, not least because he was eager to take vengeance for his father's death. But Aetius dissuaded him and suggested he should return to the Visigothic capital at Toulouse to stake his claim to be king against his untrustworthy brothers. Jordanes is clear that Aetius was afraid of a complete Hunnic defeat because he thought it would leave the Visigoths as the most powerful force in Gaul. 
Yet again, Aetius is revealed as the cunning politician, intent on playing off the different factions against each other. According to Giordani's quote, Aetius feared that if the Huns were totally destroyed by the Goths, the Roman Empire would be overwhelmed. We have one final twist on this story, unlikely to be true, but indicative of Aetius' reputation as a double dealer, from the 7th century Burgundian chronicler Fredegar, who says that the night after the battle, Aetius went secretly to Attila's camp and persuaded the Hun to pay him 10,000 gold solidi, which is about £140 of gold, to persuade Torismund to withdraw. He then went to Torismund and told him that Hun reinforcements were on the way and he needed 10,000 gold coins from the Visigoths to persuade Attila to leave. Whatever Aetius was up to, one thing was for sure. Attila's casualties were high enough for him not to want to resume the conflict. Once he was certain that the Visigoths really were withdrawing and it was not a ruse to trick him into an attack where he would then be outnumbered, He gave the order to pull back. Aetius didn't attack him. Perhaps they had come to some sort of agreement, as Fredegar said. Certainly, this outcome suited Aetius. The Hunnic wagons rolled back east from where they had come. Aetius had won the battle for Gaul, but Attila was far from finished. Once back on the Hungarian plains, he considered where to strike next. And this time his gaze was drawn to Italy and the eternal city of Rome. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And if you want to hear more about the Romans, please sign up to my newsletter at nickholmesauthor.com. I'll send you brief articles about Roman history from time to time designed to lighten your day. Just click on the link in the podcast app you're listening to right now. All you need to do is put your email in. And next week, we'll hear about Attila's invasion of Italy. Thanks for listening and see you next time. (laughs) 